The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Father, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. We ask for your spirit now to work in each of us, applying the scriptures. And we thank you for the scriptures that are living and active and judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And we ask that, Lord, your spirit would do its work through the word and ask that you would give the increase and help us with good and noble hearts to bear fruit with patience that would honor you. We ask for your help in these difficult matters. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're looking at uh, a couple different passages as we kind of skipped over the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We did 1 Corinthians 13 uh, on love. And today we're going to look at, uh, in particular, uh, prophecy um, and the purpose of prophecy. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, picking up verse 27, Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way, and then there's a whole chapter about love, and then picking up in chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, for one who speaks in a, in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want, want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And then dropping down to verse 26 to 33, next week Ben is going to preach the middle section there. Um, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, <clears throat> a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and in each in turn, and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We're going to stop there. Now, I thought when I preached the message about women wearing a head covering in 1 Corinthians 11, that that was like the hardest text that I 
and had to preach until I got to this text here. And uh, the challenge of this text is, is pretty uh, simple. I think we, we tend to come to this text with certain conclusions already in our mind. And basically, um, there's, there's two positions. There's either those who believe in continuation and those who believe in cessation. And how you arrive at the conclusions can often be uh, divisive in the body of Christ. Um, good Christians obviously disagree on this issue. It's similar to like recipients of baptism or the mode of baptism. These disagreements are largely a debate among Christians. It's an in-house debate. These are not essential doctrines to salvation. Uh, at least they should not be viewed that way, although there are some Pentecostal uh, groups that believe that if you don't speak in tongues, that you're not saved. Uh, and yet when you compare 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 with 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 31, the Bible's clear that if you're part of the body of Christ, it's because you've been born of the Spirit. That's how you become a Christian, and yet each of us has different gifts, and not everyone has this specific gift of tongue. So just here, just a reminder that 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, just as the body is one, as many members, all are members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So you become a Christian by the Spirit of God baptizing you into the body. And then he, but then in 29, we just read this, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? So those are all rhetorical questions, and the answer is no. Everybody has different gifts. So to say that you must speak in tongues or you don't have the spirit would be to divide 1 Corinthians 12 against itself and go against the plain reading of scripture uh, from 1 Corinthians 12. Now, I know there's some engineers in the room and some people that are much smarter than I am. And when you build a bridge or you build a house or children, even if you make a little igloo on your deck, uh, the infrastructure that you build has to support the weight of the structure or what's going to be on the structure. And so whether you are a cessationist or a continuationist, your, your understanding of these sign gifts or miraculous gifts, there are some serious load-bearing walls here of biblical support that must indeed support your position. And so where you shake out on that, I, I hope that we're, as we kind of are gonna delve down into the infrastructure, that it needs to be examined by scripture and we'll see which view holds the weight of either the cessationist or continuationist position. Now, I agree, this is a mountain of a task, particularly to try to do it in one sermon. And I was hoping to also cover tongues and I told Ben this morning, sorry, man, <laughs> you're on next week on that. I didn't quite get that far. Um, and I'm not going to tell you anything new or novel this morning. Um, I'm basically interacting with uh, some different books that I've read, and there's, there's numerous books out there that I haven't gotten to, um, but I'm mainly 
looking at Wayne Grudem's position of, of prophecy uh, from our, our Miraculous Gifts for Today, and then interacting with O. Palmer Robertson's book, The Final Word, and then most of all, Tom Schreiner's book, Spiritual Gifts, and Tom Schreiner comes out of John Piper's church in Minneapolis, but he takes a different position than John Piper. So those are some of the things that I'm, I'm interacting with. And, and so first of all, before we kind of get into prophecy, you, you deal, first to just, this is more of a thematic message. I'm not going to be giving you expository. People want to know about healing, and that's one of the gifts, and I think we can kind of cover that one a little quicker. Um, does God still heal? Yes. <laughs> does God still work miracles? Yes. Are they normative? Are they exceptions? And I would say, compared to the New Testament and what you see in the life of Jesus and in the life of Paul and the apostles, we do not see a regular normative experience of somebody having a gift of healing today. And if they did, they should be at Shady Grove Hospital this afternoon, and then they should be over Germantown Hospital this evening, and they should be at Holy Cross tomorrow. But instead, they're on TV usually putting their hand out for money as faith healers. So I do think that the gifts do, or the, the healing does happen, but I don't think it's a particular person with a gift. And I think that often God chooses not to heal because he would have us be weak. And often in his weakness, what happens? His grace is made perfect. My dad gets offended when people want to pray for healing for him. He's got ALS. He's had it now for over four years. He's wrestled with this. He's had to work through this. He's asked the Lord to heal him. And he's come to the conclusion that that's not God's will for his life. And he's okay with that because he wants to make much of God in his condition. And Johnny Erickson Tata is also offended when people come and pray over her as, and, and put it on her that she doesn't have enough faith as to why she's not healed. She has had to wrestle with that. And, and if God would heal her, she sought that, and, and that wasn't the Lord's will for her. So in our church, what we do with healing, if you have a particular um, disease or ailment or you want the elders to pray over you, we do anoint with oil, and we pray for healing through the elders. And we think that we've seen God do some things. And is it a magic thing that every time we pray that automatically God's going to heal? I don't see that in the New Testament as to be the normative now that we see today in the church. In the, old, in the New Testament, I mean, Paul could come into a place and they would bring all kinds of people when he was on the island of Malta and they just start bringing the people and he just starts healing people. Uh, people would walk in the shadow of the apostles and get a healing. And we don't see that today like that. And so I would say that, the, that it's, God still heals, but it's not to a particular gift of healing. Now let's consider um, the other thing too with this is that when people come and ask for healing, I remember a pastor once told me, he said, well, he tells people, are you asking for an ultimate healing or a temporary healing? Which would you like me to pray for? Because if I pray for the ultimate healing, then I'm going to pray that he takes you home. So we're just getting a temporary healing at best in this life. And we live with this already not yet tension in the kingdom of God. He does give temporary healings on occasion, but it isn't normative or through a particular gift of a person. Now let's consider prophecy. And before we, we answer the question, 
of um, whether this continues, we gotta kinda go down to the infrastructure and ask some questions. What is a prophecy? Is it the same as preaching? Is it anointed exegesis of an inspired impression that is usually right? Is it the same as Old Testament prophecy that was infallible? Or is New Testament prophecy fallible? Those are important questions, and the answers to the questions must be deeply rooted in the scriptures. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Many of the Puritans, like William Perkins, for example, he wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying, kind of a scary book, The Art of Prophesying, and his book was basically uh, showing that, that prophecy is preaching the Bible. Well, it sounds kind of cool, but that's not what the scriptures teach. I don't think so. <clears throat> Here's why. Those with the gift of prophecy are declaring. <clears throat> My voice is not cooperating this morning. Hold on. <clears throat> Those with the gift of prophecy are declaring God's word, but it's not from a prepared text like preaching. Prophets don't work from a written text. Preachers do. Prophets are speaking the word of God that God by revelation has given them utterance to speak. Prophets convey what God has revealed to them, often apart from revelation of scripture. Now preaching and prophecy are similar that they both speak about God's will for people in particular situations, but they're different gifts. One is exegeting a text and applying it to people, one is not. Preaching comes from studying a biblical text, and that's what we're doing here. I'm not prophesying, but prophecy is God communicating his word directly to the mind of the prophet, and the prophet is revealing this revelation. Agabus in Acts wasn't studying scripture when the Lord revealed to him that a famine would arise in the Roman world. Furthermore, Agabus again made a, a prophecy about predicting that the Jews would bind Paul and hand him over to the Gentiles in Acts 21. That is a New Testament prophecy. In Acts 13, we are told the Lord spoke and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. You have to wonder, well, how did, the, how did they get that message? It had to have been, as this revelation was revealed to Barnabas and Saul, it had to come through a prophetic revelation. Now we have to ask ourselves, was that prophetic word fallible or infallible? How would you know? If somebody stood up and said, God has told me that Ben Hine is gonna begin a missions work in Uganda, and you know, you'd be, you would wanna know, well, how? You know, someone once came to Spurgeon and said, the Lord has told me that I'm to preach in this pulpit, you know, such and such a date. And you know what Spurgeon said? Well, the Lord hasn't told me that. <laughs> and he didn't let him have the pulpit. <laughs> well, so this leads us into the question about New Testament prophecy. And is it fallible or infallible? What we mean by that is, do the, can the New Testament prophets err Unlike the Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets, you were either a true or a false prophet. And if they erred or their prophecy didn't come true, they were regarded as a false prophet and were punishable by death. And the criteria is laid out in Deuteronomy 18. So Old Testament prophets would commonly end their prophecy with, thus says the Lord. 
The Old Testament prophet was God's mouthpiece to his people as God's exact words came directly through the prophet to the people. So the question is, are the New Testament prophets the same as Old Testament prophets? And if not, what has changed? And the burden of proof is to demonstrate if there is a change, where do we see that in Scripture, that now we've gone from infallible prophets to fallible prophets in the New Testament? And if so, what evidence do we have that New Testament prophets actually got it wrong, that they actually gave some fallible prophecies. So Wayne Grudem, I, sure, I know many of you are familiar with him, particularly those who've come over from Covenant Life, and he's written a lot on this, and he's kind of popularized the position the last 30 years that Old Testament prophets, I realize this is going to sound like a seminary lecture this morning, but stick with me. Sometimes we have to do this. It's going to be kind of heady. This is his position. Old Testament prophets equals New Testament apostles. But New Testament prophets is a new category. They are lower level fallible prophets, not the same as Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets equals New Testament apostles. New Testament prophets are prone to error and they are infallible. And so the word God, he says the word God gives to them is infallible, but it becomes tainted with error in either the reception or the delivery. And so Grudem's view hangs on the support-bearing beams, the infrastructure of 1 Corinthians 14, 29, which we read. And, the, and that verse in, fourth, in 1 Corinthians um, 14, 29, let's take a look at that, that particular verse, because this is an important verse of which a lot hangs. It says, let two or three speak and let the others weigh what is said. And that, that word weigh is a key word here because Grudem's interpretation is that, is that they are to weigh what is of God and what is not of God. If, and I don't mean to say this crassly, but to kind of sink it into your head, it's kind of a buffalo wild wings approach. When you eat buffalo wild wings, what do you do? You don't eat the whole thing. You eat the chicken and you throw away the bones. So the typical, the other view would be it's either you take the whole thing and, re, and chuck the whole thing. That would be one view of interpreting 1 Corinthians 14, 29. It's all from God, it's fallible or infallible, or it's not. And the other view is you take the meat and you throw away the bones and you discern and weigh what is truth and what is not. So one is a fallible view, one is infallible, if that makes sense. So Grudem's view says that, it's, that what is being, de being determined here by these New Testament prophets is the body was to weigh which parts of, of the prophecy are true and which are not. It becomes a very difficult task in reality. Um, so this is, this is different than the traditional view of an Old Testament prophet where you are to weigh, is this of God or is it not? You either take the whole thing or you reject the whole thing. So that would be a, a crucial difference in the support-bearing structure is your understanding of the word weigh in 1 Corinthians 14.29. The second is that Grudem believes that the Greek fits this translation better of Ephesians 2.20. That his translation, we read this verse, 
in the, in the worship service this morning that says the foundation was built on the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the foundation being built on the apostles and prophets, Grudem says a better translation is apostles who are prophets. And so what, what Grudem is saying is that because Old Testament prophets equals New Testament apostles, he sees that since he thinks the Greek can match these two, that he's putting the New Testament prophets is not applying in Ephesians 2.20. So Ephesians 2.20 would be apostles who are prophets, okay? Now, the difficulty with that view, all these things have to hold up the support-bearing beams as we think this through, is that the um, passage we just read this morning from 1 Corinthians, um, where he says, um, he says in verse 28 of chapter 12, that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing. So to say that they're the same office of apostles who are prophets and to merge them as one doesn't make sense with 1 Corinthians 12 that clearly says there's first prophets and then or first apostles and second prophets. Clearly they're being separated. And then if you look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says that, um, you know, 220 is the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Then he says on in chapter 3, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul is equating that, that the, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the light that we have in the New. And so the mystery is now being, which was concealed, has now been revealed, and it's being revealed by holy apostles and prophets, and the prophets is not Old Testament prophets because they, these things were concealed, and Paul is declaring a mystery that's now being made known from apostles and prophets, and they're building the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And Grudem is trying to say that it's the apostles are the prophets and that there's a new category in the New Testament of New Testament prophets that are fallible. Here's the problem. If the foundation of the church is built on what? Apostles and prophets. If your view of prophecy is that it's fallible, now you have a fallible foundation of the church. That, therein lies a problem. And so Grudem is trying to escape that problem by saying that the apostles who are prophets, I don't think that fits uh, better with the support-bearing structure. So um, furthermore, 
What, what Grudem goes on to argue is that not only are prophets fallible and they err and they can make mistakes, is that Grudem and some others have, have hinted and actually just come out right and said in Acts 21 that when Agabus prophesied about the Jews uh, are going to bind Paul and hand him over to the Gentiles, they argue that Paul was in reality rescued from the Jews by the Romans who saved his life. And so Agabus then got some of the details wrong, yet he isn't regarded as a false prophet. So they're trying to show from scripture that New Testament prophets err. The problem with that is that when Paul himself interprets what happened with Agabus in Acts 28, 20, 17, he says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So Paul understands the events that have transpired as accurate as to what Agabus has prophesied, and therefore to argue that Agabus was a fallible prophet doesn't seem to support the weight-bearing structure of Scripture. And so um, let's continue on with the... Um, so... Um, Here's the other problem. If the foundation of the church is built on the apostles and prophets, and if prophets exist today, then the foundation isn't complete. And furthermore, since the foundation is built on both the apostles and prophets, if the one office is still available, then why not the other? If the foundation of the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, if prophets still exist, then so should apostles. And most people are, most continuationalists will say, no, that office has ceased. But some will still hold that there are even apostles today. And the problem with that is that we no longer have authoritative apostles like the 12. Roman Catholics will want to tell you that there's, that it continues, a cessation or, or continuation of apostles continues down through the Pope. But the scriptures don't teach that. The scriptures teach that the, the apostles, their authority is preserved in the scriptural witness. And when James died in Acts 20 and Acts 12, he wasn't replaced as an apostle showing that the gift of apostleship didn't continue in subsequent generations. To qualify as an apostle, one had to be commissioned as an apostle and to see the risen Lord. Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on the Damascus road and summoned him to apostolic service. And Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that he sees himself as the last person that the Lord appeared to, if you remember what he says. So there are no more apostles appointed after Paul. Apostolic authority is enshrined in the scriptures. And so, and many continuationists have a form of cessation at that point in, in not seeing the apostle office continuing. And so my, where I've landed on this is that the foundation of the church being built on the apostles and prophets the office of apostle is, is no longer being laid and both offices are now no longer needed because we have all that we need now for life and godliness with a complete canon of scripture. So some will argue, well, if that's the case, 
then what happens to these prophets that spoke? If they're speaking infallibly and these New Testament prophets were infallible, shouldn't everything they said have been recorded in the scripture? People will say that. Well, not everything that Elijah and Elisha prophesied is recorded in scripture. We have a record of 50 prophets hidden by Obadiah. What did they prophesy about? We're not told. We're told the apostle Paul wrote, we know he wrote at least three and most likely four epistles to the Corinthians, and yet we only have two. Hmm. Does that mean that two weren't infallible and the other two were, were, were or weren't? Or did the Holy Spirit see fit to preserve for us First and Second Corinthians as what we needed in the canon of scripture? So I, I, I don't think though, what happens in New Testament uh, in the churches today uh, when people give a, a prophecy, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily, uh, and, and there are definitely false teachers. I mean, the, the Old Testament warns a lot about false teachers, right? In Jeremiah, for example, they're, they're, and, but Jesus does too. He warns about these false teachers who will come in, in, in sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. And the Bible warns a lot about false teachers in the New Testament. And so there is that, that, that happens. But I think what happens more in the New Testament is I think the categories have been shifted. And what I mean by that is this. When people share things that God has impressed upon their heart, I would say are more better in a category of impressions and better in a category of exhortation and encouragement than I would say prophecy of what prophecy, when we see what a prophecy is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, would we say that gift, when, when, when Piper talks about he wants an anointed word and he wants to say things that are prophetic when he preaches, is he talking about new revelation or is he talking about having an exhortation, encouragement that would be fresh and, and touch the hearts of people in a way that hasn't stirred them before? I think that's more of what he's getting at. Rather than a prophecy, now it's not to say, here's the interesting thing, People do make prophecies. I mean, Spurgeon one time was preaching. He said, somebody has stolen gloves. And there was somebody in the church that had stolen gloves and he repented and got saved. But then the greatest preacher the world's ever known made a great prophecy about his own son was gonna be a greater preacher than him, George Whitfield. And his son died when he was extremely young as a kid. And Whitfield had to repent and recognize he was wrong. So, but, but I think when people give um, impressions, they are in tune with the Spirit of God, they're in tune with the congregation, and they, they say things like, God has laid upon my heart that many of you in this room are weary and heavy burden, and you're really in need of rest, and you're anxious and troubled because you're more like Martha than Mary. And you could go on, with, and most of us would be like, that's me, that, that, this is Montgomery County, um, and that's a word that you need to hear, and sometimes it can be applied very powerfully. I would say that's a gift of exhortation, a gift of encouragement, and it's needed in the body of Christ, both individually people need to hear that, and there's times we need to hear that publicly, but I wouldn't call that a category of infallible prophecy that is binding on the people of God. 
because my concern is that it creates a confusion because on the one hand, if we say that prophecy is superior to all the other gifts, earnestly desire to prophesy, and yet we say we're to, we're to give more credence to the word of God, well, who, who do you end up listening to? Because it gets confusing as to who really has the final word. And lastly, I would say this. If the New Testament prophets are fallible, this is a pretty big step backwards from the New Testament realities that everything about the New Covenant is to be better than the Old Covenant. So why then would, would prophecy in the Old Covenant all of a sudden be worse in the New Covenant? O. Palmer Robertson puts it like this. He says, if the New Covenant in every way is better than the Old, it rightly could be expected that every part of the New Covenant would be better than its Old Covenant counterpart. Christ on the cross is better than the brazen serpent on a stick. Resurrection from the dead is better than exodus from Egypt. Baptism is better than circumcision. And inheriting the new heavens and new earth is better than possessing Palestine. In the context of comparisons between the old covenant and the new, it would seem strange indeed if new covenant prophecies took on a form that was significantly weaker in manifesting divine perfection than its old covenant counterpart. But is it to be expected that this more glorious reality is to be communicated through a fallible, unreliable form of prophecy in drastic contrast with the unbroken perfection of 1,500 years of Old Covenant prophecy? So I would just say, as you work through your own view, we may disagree on this, and I'd be curious to hear from you. Do the support-bearing beams of your position bear the infrastructure of the weight that you're putting on it so that the, we're truly seeing the scriptures are being wrestled with so that your position is grounded and rooted in the scriptures. I hope that's helpful to you. Look forward to hearing from you on this. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord and head of your church. And we do thank you that you have poured out your spirit and we thank you that your spirit guides us and leads us into truth. And we pray that that would be the case here. And that if I have erred in what I have said, that you would make it clear. But if truth has been spoken, that you by your spirit would make that clear as well. We pray, Lord, for each of us that we would wrestle deeper with the scriptures. And that we would use the gifts that you have given to us to bring glory to the body of Christ, for we ask in your name. Amen.